Hello, everyone. This is Jamie Hopkins, managing partner at Carson, author of the book Rewirement, Rewiring the Way You Think About Retirement Planning, and one of the hosts of the Framework Podcast. I wanted to give a quick introduction to this podcast because it's a little bit different than some of our other shows. This episode is part of a series of retirement income-focused episodes that are recorded with some of the top minds and thought leaders in the profession of retirement income planning. The series was also recorded in conjunction with PIMCO, and Devin Eckberg joined me as a co-host for this series. I hope you enjoy this episode and the whole retirement income series on the Framework Podcast as much as I have. We designed this so you can better understand the challenges and planning uniqueness around retirement income planning. Enjoy. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Framework Podcast. This is part of a really interesting series that we are doing here on retirement income planning, something that's near and dear to me. And I'm really excited to have on somebody who uh, I've actually gotten to work with before and, uh, you know, was a great leader and mentor to me during some of the building of different retirement income programs. So to join Devin and I here today, we've got Dr. Michael Finka. So excited to have you on the show here today. It's great to be here, Jamie. Yeah. Well, we are um, actually recording a lot of these out in Chicago at a Retirement Income Summit, which is fun, too. And Chicago is known to be a great food town, which we're, we're throwing you the curveball question at the beginning. Um, do you have a favorite food item in the country or favorite food town that you like to go to? Anything that speaks to you about food? Oh, man. Chicago is probably my favorite food town. I never eat badly when I come to Chicago, I have to say. Now, when, in Texas, you know, it's, it's about the cow. But in Chicago, it's about the pig. And I'll tell you, growing up in the Midwest, I am a fan of the pig. Now, saying that, probably my favorite food in Chicago, and I hate to admit this, I probably shouldn't admit this in public, but it has been so long since I've had White Castle. It's been at least two years now through the pandemic that I have not been in a city that had White Castle. So I was supposed to go out to dinner last night, and I snuck into a White Castle and had a double cheeseburger as an appetizer and didn't tell anybody. And it was every bit as good as I expected it to be. <laughs> I was at CVS, and I saw that they have frozen White Castle in there, too, no, 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 in case no, you no, need no, some no, CVS. No, no. Is, that, is that not the same? It's What's not the, the same at all. You, you, uh, you got to experience it in person, right? Because it's, uh, you know, the, the, the frozen piece of it just is not the same. No. Yeah, that's where the magic is made. It's the the steaming and the onions mm-hmm. and, you know, that's that's there's just nothing quite like it. So uh, another question, I think, just to kick off this is, you know, how did you become interested in the retirement income field? Like, where is your why story behind that? Because, you know, you spend a lot of time on it, right? You you invest, you research, you travel. Um, so you got to have something that, you know, is probably more personal about your interest to it. You know, it's it really stems from my training as an economist and then moving into financial planning. Once I got into financial planning, I saw the way that practitioners thought about retirement income planning. And to me, it seemed a little bit incomplete, this lens of the 4% rule. And in particular, uh, you know, economists think like in terms of utility. So we want people to be as happy in retirement as we can possibly be. And what I was seeing is that the traditional practice of creating a right retirement income from an investment portfolio didn't really jibe with my idea of utility maximization. Utility maximization being how do we set up some sort of a plan that's actually going to make people the happy 
happiest, not necessarily the one that's going to generate the most alpha or um, the one that's going to allow you to sustain the largest portfolio. Well, if that's not necessarily your goal, then why why are we doing it this way? So I, I, I came in a bit, as a bit of an outsider, as many economists do when they think about retirement income, they have a slightly different slant than I think practitioners. Um, and that's really motivated what I do because I, I was at a PhD program or I, I led the PhD program at Texas Tech, which is a big financial planning program. And I tried to teach the graduate students there who then taught their students that you need to think a little bit more broadly about this retirement income planning thing. And I think you and I both at the American College, we saw it from a broader perspective than perhaps some other folks in the industry. Devin, uh, we haven't touched this with you, but how did you get so deeply involved in the income side too? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that I noticed right off the bat is that the the research in this field is still evolving, right? So on the investment management side, which is what kind of my background is, it's it's sort of settled, right? As far as investment management and the kind of the best practices and so forth, kind of the mathematical models and so forth. But, uh, you know, financial planning in general, but retirement planning in particular, just felt like there was a lot more research evolving in that area and kind of interesting things coming out. And so that's where I started to kind of uh, do a little bit more research myself and find, find out who some of the thought leaders were and people that were saying really smart things about that space. And so I just kind of uh, kind of gravitated towards it almost accidentally. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. I think both of you kind of mentioned how this field's evolving. And we were kind of joking, Michael and I were before we came in, and like rock stars in this area. We, we, we think like, oh, they're so huge. And we remember like, this area is still really small, right? Like there's a limited number of people that actually do income research. Mostly everything's been savings oriented, investment oriented, you know, broader scale economic oriented. Now, one of the pieces of research that I, I like, and I know, uh, Michael, you've looked at before too is this kind of spending data for people with wealth right a lot of people in uh, that are listening or advisors or have investments and we see this kind of interesting dynamic right there's people that have no money in retirement we also have people that are underspending right and so what have you kind of found in this kind of underspending area for retirees well, I mean, when I do interviews with retirees, sometimes I they will be so proud of the fact that they're not spending very much money in retirement. They'll talk about how they're, you know, going early to the two for one dinners and they're not going on these extravagant vacations and, you know, they're bragging essentially about the fact that they're not spending very much. And then if you ask them, well, you must really want to pass on more of your wealth to your kids because you're not spending very much, which means you'll have more money. And then they say there's this moment of confusion where they say, well, we help them pay for their education. They have they make more money than we ever did. Uh, you know, that's not our primary goal. And I mean, I think sometimes we forget that there's only two things we can do with our money in retirement. We can either spend it or we can pass it on. And we're not very deliberate about the amount of our wealth that we want to spend and the amount that we want to pass on. There's no third option. Um, and if we're more deliberate about that from the very beginning, I think we can do a better job of establishing, carving out a portion of our savings that we want to use for lifestyle. And then thinking, freeing ourselves up to actually spend that money to live in retirement and not feeling as if we need to conserve it because there is this natural human tendency to want to preserve our nest egg. If we get to retirement with a million dollars, we fixate on that million dollar value. We use that as a reference point and it becomes very difficult for us to see that 
that dollar value get smaller, even if it means, you know, that's why we saved all this money over the course of our lifetime is to live better in retirement. We sacrifice during our working years, but we get to retirement. All of a sudden, there is this mental barrier to actually spending the money. That's that's a problem. It is a major human problem. We have this whole system that's dedicated to living better in retirement, and it's not working as well as it should because people are not spending as much as we would expect them to spend given the wealth that they have. So, and it seems like it, it affects all wealth levels. It's not just, uh, you know, more the mass market. It's, it's the affluent levels and the high net worth levels. They all kind of experience that same, you know, tendency to underspend. Yeah. You know, and we have this data set called the health and retirement study, which was uh, created by the University of Michigan in 1992. It's longitudinal, which means we can actually follow retirees over time. Um, it's hard for me to admit as an Ohio State grad that anything useful came out of the University of Michigan, but it is the primary data set that I work with. And, you can actually see these people in the data set who have a million and a half dollars and they have, you know, $20,000 of social security and they spend $22,000 and $18,000 and $25,000 a year. And the money just doesn't get smaller. And you, you, you know, you want to just grab that person and say, well, what, why did you save all this money? And, and you're just not bringing yourself to spend it in retirement. What's the problem? And it happens with wealthy people. You know, it's, it, if you look across the spectrum, I think especially with wealthy, because the problem is that many of these wealthy people, their entire life, they spent less than their income. And they actually feel that part of their identity is living within their means, is spending less than their income. Then they get to retirement and they continue to try to spend less than their income. But that's not the goal of retirement. It's a different game when you get to retirement. And it's not, you shouldn't necessarily feel somehow morally superior because you're spending less than your income. But we feel that way. It's just part of that, yeah, the habit of thrift that many of us have. And Jamie, isn't that the the role of the advisor is to try to connect those dots, right? He says uh, people don't really want to optimize their wealth necessarily. They want to optimize their lives with their wealth, but they're having trouble doing that because of some of those behavioral tendencies that that uh, that Dr. Finca was talking about. Yeah. The, the role of the advisor, I think, has continued to shift. I think for a long time, they were expected to be the investment person or the product person. And so you didn't expect them to figure out what your life was going to be like later on. And I think that's a huge benefit of, you know, whether you want to call it goals-based planning or aspirational-based planning, but setting those, and you mentioned the anchor points or those fixation points on more of the outcome of your life and less so about the dollars or products. So you're actually thinking like, I want to be an explorer. Well, then how do you get to be an explorer through using your wealth and income in retirement, not I saved a million, and so I'm going to try to keep a million. But it also goes back, I, I, I call it SNS. It was in one of my presentations at some point, which was savings, not spending. We've spent 30 years telling people how to save, not spend. And then we get to retirement, like, just kidding, you got to flip that around and do the opposite now. And Michael, I want to lead you to another one, which is um, you've also talked about like the self-insuring part, which you alluded to, but didn't use that language too, right? So longevity is a big risk for people. And when you talk to these retirees, they're also kind of worried about that uncertainty in the future. So the fact that they don't spend today is kind of like, well, yeah, but I'm ready for anything bad that could happen in the future. So what do you see kind of in that relationship of longevity and self-insuring so many retirement risks? Well, you know, it is a true risk, and it's okay to be afraid of it. Um, 
if you, you know, the example that I sometimes give is, is what would you do if your wife phoned you up and said, Hey, there's a birthday cake in the fridge and there's going to be some kids coming over from a birthday party and somewhere between five and 40 kids are going to stop by. So <laughs> you, you know, the, and they're going to come in one at a time. So you have to, when the first kid comes in, you have to decide how big of a piece of cake to give that first kid. Now, if you know that 40 people might show up, you're going to cut it really thin because you want to make sure that it lasts so that that 35th kid doesn't come in and there's no more cake left. And if you do that, though, um, that first kid is going to be disappointed. He's going to little, have a little tiny piece of cake. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's how a risk-averse person should behave when they don't know how many kids are going to show up for a piece of cake. And it's the same problem in the retirement. If you don't know how many years your savings needs to fund a lifestyle in retirement, the tendency will be to cut a very small piece. Now, what would happen if you somehow create an agreement with a bakery? And uh, if, you know, the bakery on average, maybe 20 kids are going to come and the bakery says, you know, if more than 20 kids come, we're just going to show up with a new cake. So you you sh you cut it as if the average number of kids are going to show up. So, you know, you cut the first cake into 20 pieces. Then the 21st cake shows up. The, the bakery comes with a second cake and now you have enough cake for everybody. That's what's known as risk pooling. And you can get an institution can, to agree to step in if you end up living longer than the average. So you can delegate that potential risk to an institution. Um, and it may be that you have to pay the bakery, uh, you know, a little bit more to to show up with that second cake. They have to be able to stay in business and to be able to provide that service. But wouldn't everybody be better off if you had that institution that was providing the backup? So that is the risk that all of us face with an unknown longevity. And as any economist would tell you, the efficient way of dealing with that risk is by pooling it with other retirees through an institution. Or, right, you could teach the parents of the kids that are late a really good lesson that their kids don't get any cake, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank <No>? you, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what cake would everyone pick? It's also a very important question. So I I'm a carrot cake person, but kids don't love carrot cake, so we don't really have a lot of carrot cake at birthdays. But the bakery house in Bryn Mawr, I don't, have you been to that one I've before? Not, yeah. Well, they have very good cakes, but they have a, like, it's like a lemon and chocolate chip kind of pound cake one that they make their oh, birthday cakes out of and it's fantastic so whenever you're there next back in pennsylvania you should just go get one of those bring it to the <laughs> office everyone can eat it and you can cut them into small slices as you want michael and i'll say i'll ju i'm just doing it for my presentation so that <laughs> i can yeah yeah make it more real I, I love that analogy i've never heard it before um do, do you think the industry does a good job of explaining uh, when I may say the industry, the retirement industry, and and maybe some of the uh, you know the insurance uh, side of the industry, do they do a good enough job explaining you know what that type of product and service is and how it benefits that end client? You know, uh, I, I think if you would talk to someone like Stan, the annuity man, who I don't know if you've ever <laughs> talked to Stan, yep. he is a super smart dude, and his opinion is that you know this is a obvious source of value that insurance industry could be providing, and they're probably not getting the message across as clearly as they could to consumers. And I think a lot of the problem is that the products that are pure, that are pure longevity protection type products are not very popular with consumers for whatever mm -hmm. reason, whether it's a lack of 
understanding or marketing or, uh, you know, the increasing importance of defaults. People save and, and target date funds. They get to retirement. Um, it, it's, it requires an active choice to buy some sort of longevity income protection. A lot of them never get to that point where they have to make an active choice and actually do it. A lot of investment advisors are not incentivized to, to recommend that mortality pooling element. Um, and I, you know, that's, that I think is a, is a problem with the industry. And also there is the problem of how many of these products are sold and, you know, there's this negative perception. And that's something that I think the insurance industry could do a better job of, of keeping a tight rein on how the products are sold. Um, it's, you know, it, it is the right way to approach retirement planning. And I feel like in many ways, the message hasn't gotten across to consumers. You mentioned it there, so I'll just hop to that question, which is the negative perceptions around the term annuities when it comes to consumers. I know you've talked about this before, because if you describe what an annuity does, consumers say, yeah, I'm really excited. I want oh, yeah. that product. <laughs> and then you say, well, this is an annuity. Ah, no, I'm good, right? And so uh, you've spent a lot more time in that world. What have you kind of landed on as some of the underlying causes, or is it behavioral? Is it the marketing messages weren't good? Is it the fact that everyone Every company says their product's unique, which has always been a hurdle for me, right? The, unlike a lot of other areas where everybody markets like, hey, I'm a, you know, like we're a car. We help solve this problem. The annuity world's always like we put on a new name and a new wrapper and we try to explain that it's different from all the other products in existence. And it almost t- makes you think like, ah, I've got to figure out something else that's different than everything else that's out there. You know, the the property insurance industry actually moved a long time ago towards standardization of product designs. And it's not something that the annuity industry has done. Now, when there is standardization of product designs, there is a lot of advantages. It's easier to regulate. It's easier for price competition. But that's also a disadvantage, price competition. So, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of standardizing a few forms of annuitization mm-hmm. and then allowing companies to compete either in terms of credit quality or in terms of pricing, but making sure that that's very clear to consumers. They can make the right choice of tradeoffs. Um, I, you know, there is this issue with the annuity label because it encompasses such a wide range of financial products, some of which do completely different things than that longevity risk protection. Um, and that also creates a problem with misreception because a consumer may think that they're buying one thing and they get another thing and then advisors will tell them, well, this is not a very efficient product, uh, or they'll get very negative messaging about annuities from, I think, advisors who are self-serving in some cases because they cannot provide the protection that an annuity can provide, yet they hate annuities or they try to, you know, denigrate them. But it's just a product structure. It's it's a you know it's a design. It's a set of tax laws, and they can provide a lot of advantages. You and I know, uh, but I think this is one of those those issues where the industry really needs to be more coordinated. Now they've done that through the Alliance for Lifetime Income to some mm-hmm. extent, um, but I think especially when it comes to products, that's an area where we could see more. And I also you know it, it, I I think the industry needs to be very careful too about uh, the regulation of risk in the insurance industry because especially if we start pooling a lot of risk in the defined contribution space we need to be sure that none of those insurers are in any sort of financial distress what's been the barrier so far to that uh you know movement like on the pro- on the uh, property side what what's been the barrier on the annuity side to uh, sort of you know standardize even a, a portion of those types of annuities 
You know, that's a good question. Uh, it takes a lot of industry organization and trust and coordination to provide the, that type of collaborative standardization. And I just don't think we've had that yet in this industry. I also think there are those who think that they're better off not standardizing, that coming up with a unique product that can maybe provide a um, higher profit margin, that's that's a better way. But then, I, you know, it is the ideal way to approach income and retirement. And we have now this enormous generation of defined contribution retirees. The peak of the baby boom was between 1958 and 1961. This, they're all coming towards retirement at the same time. And this is the moment really to capture a lot of that rollover business in a more ideal type of product. Wouldn't it be great if we had a lot of First of all, innovation and standardization in the structure of that product that people could feel comfortable rolling their money into without a lot of those games that you see, I think, going on in the industry right now. I mean, trust is a big issue. Part of being a great fiduciary is helping your clients understand their full financial picture, and it should be no different for your life. Do you know what your business is worth? Get your firm valuation today with our free valuation calculator. Whether you're looking to share equity with your team, buy another firm, prepare for an exit, or just simply want to see the market value of your business, visit carsongroup.com valuation to get started. New year, new Excel. Excel Revolution is taking place September 13th through the 15th at the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. Whether you're an established advisor or just starting out, you'll benefit from three days packed with impactful breakout sessions, unlimited networking, and keynote speakers like two-time Olympic gold medalist and World Cup champion Abby Wambach. You can join me there by registering now at excelconference.com. To, to me, it sounds like a similar problem that some advisors are having, right? They want to standardize some of their practices and services, but they don't want to commoditize themselves away, right? So they want to kind of balance that value proposition with providing, you know, a, an efficient service for their clients. Um, just seems like a, a, a recurring problem on all sides of the industry. Yeah, I think when you get to the advisor side, and, you know, my views on this continue to evolve, and the more advisors I've gotten to work with, and then seeing people get really clear on what they do... And then all of a sudden you realize that like their clients didn't care about the stuff they thought they were adding all this value on. And like, that's one of the biggest takeaways. Cause I used to, you know, when I used to teach at the American college and I go meet these advisors and they tell me about their secret sauce and I would be like, oh wow, like that probably is their secret sauce. Later on, I learned they actually, most of their clients don't really care about that, right? They're, they're not there because they're picking every stock for every portfolio over and over and over again. And when they get rid of that, a lot of times those advisors actually grow faster than they were before because they thought that they were adding all this additional value and that's what was keeping their clients, but it wasn't. And I think it's hard for people to get over because until you've gone through that, it feels scary. Right. So if you're in a big industry that's been around for a long time, and you're making money and you say, well, we're going to go standardize and change everything that we're doing. It's a scary proposition. And, you know, change at that level is very hard to achieve. So one possible way, right, is government intervention, meaning we have one product out there, at least, right, the QLAC, which is more or less standardized, right, because the government gave us very, very strict rules around what this can be. Um, and you're in the QLAC fan club, right? The, I don't know who, who all's in that one. Like eight now, There's like eight, <laughs> yeah. But we will get t-shirts eventually. Maybe right. that'll be a takeaway from this one. We can, we, we've talked about that on, on Twitter before, <laughs> sending out these QLAC fan club t-shirts. But 
so what is the role that the qualified longevity annuity contract, wh- where do you see that playing in? Because you've done research around that side too. Yeah, I mean, in order to understand the benefit of late life annuitization, and that's there's two issues here. One is the qualified longevity annuity contract tax incentive, mm-hmm. uh, which of course goes up when interest rates go up. So the this, the tax deferral benefit is actually going to be increasing in the future. Now it goes down slightly if they delay the RMD age, but you still get a tax break. Now, why an economist would love it is that it takes that later life income and it annuitizes income when annuitization is most efficient. So if you think about funding later life income, let's say I want to fund, I'm a healthy 65-year-old woman, I want to fund income, a base of income for the rest of my life. Um, I have to, if I'm going to do it with bonds, I have to choose the age at which the money runs out. So if I choose to the age of 95, then I got a 27% chance of outliving my savings. Okay, that's too risky. I'll build a bond ladder to the age of 100. Well, if I do that, then I still have a 9% chance I'm going to be alive and I'm not going to be able to spend very much. The alternative is that I can take a chunk of money, hand it over to an insurance company. They will pro- promise to pay me you know, maybe $40,000 a year starting at the age of 85 and I will get a little bit of a tax deferral bonus because of it. Um, but what I do is I, I, I get rid of that long life base income risk. And now that frees me up to be able to spend more money earlier on before the age of 85. And a husband and wife do this. They can each get, you know, thirty-five dollars to $40,000. You can put up to $145,000 in a QLAC add that to social security and you've got enough money to live on not you know 90 year olds are not spending a whole lot of money on anything other than healthcare so you can fund a base of income later on in life and that gives you the freedom then to spend more now why is it efficient it's efficient because if i had to fund income to the age of 100 outside of an annuity it would cost far more money. I would have to set aside far more of my savings in bonds to fund that safe income later on in life. And by the way, occasionally when people criticize QLACs, they say, well, you know, you lose out on growth. Well, if you're funding a base of safe income using bonds anyway, and every retiree has a portion of their savings in bonds and a portion in stocks. So if you've got 60% of your savings in bonds, maybe take, you know, 20% and put it in a QLAC. And now you've got 40% bonds and, uh, you know, roughly equal amount of equities in your portfolio, but it's less risky, even though it may be more volatile in terms of the volatility of your investment portfolio, it's less volatile in terms of the amount of income you can generate from that portfolio. It's a common misunderstanding when people critique, and I actually noticed it in the Morningstar article on QLACs that was done recently. Um, They made the mistake again Mm -hmm. of, assuming that you're missing out on growth by buying a QLAC. No, it comes from your bond allocation, should not come from your equity allocation. That's not appropriate. Um, And then in the remainder of your portfolio, you should allocate for that. And also, if you're doing something like delaying Social Security, essentially, you should fund your spending that year out of stocks because you're building up the bond portion of your portfolio. You know, I saw that article too. and, And what struck me too is not only are you removing some of the risk on the bond side of the portfolio, sort of gives you a little bit more permission to pursue more risk on the equity it side does. of the portfolio yeah. as well, right? Kind of give it's that permission thing that uh, you were talking about earlier, Jamie. Yeah, I love this uh, notion around, you know, both of them is when you're building in more safe income or income flow at different periods, right? 
what we should be able to communicate over then is that you also you have both permission to take some risk, right, and permission to spend. And I think that's a really great outcome starting where we started, which was people aren't spending. How do you think advisors and the I'll just stick with advisors. How do you think advisors or if you're listening, how can you better communicate that a bit let you know, kind of permission to spend if you set the portfolio up right. Because I, I also fear somebody does that, and guess what? They don't spend a single dollar more, right? They just start behaving because that it's not real to them yet because it's sitting in the future. Yeah, there are things that advisors do. I think informed advisors using sort of, for example, the bucket strategy where you can take a portion of the portfolio and dump it into a, you know, a, a checking account. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people see the money in their checking account and they think that it's okay if they spend it. So you can use framing as a way of getting people to spend more. Now, that framing, and a lot of people make this mistake with a bucket strategy, and they assume that it provides a certain amount of income protection, which it does not. It's just a unprotected investment portfolio, and it's how you frame the elements of that portfolio. I still hear people at conference say, well, what if you use the bucket strategy? And I'm like, well, you're the one who's defining the buckets. The portfolio is the portfolio. It doesn't make it any more safe. So an investment advisor can create these buckets to make it easier potentially for people to spend, but that doesn't take away the potential risk. And let me just give you an example of something that I've been giving a lot of thought to recently, and that's this idea of the the 4% rule methodology and what it means to take investment risk. So let's say you retire, let's say a few months ago. A lot of people did. They The, the you know, asset prices went up. They decided they were going to leave the workforce at the end of the COVID era. Um, and if they did that, let's say they had a million dollars in their portfolio, let's say, which, you know, who knows what's going to happen over the next year, but let's say the portfolio falls by 30%. Now they have $700,000, but they've also withdrawn $40,000 to fund spending over the course of the first year. So they got maybe $660,000. Now they're one year older, they've got $660,000, and they're supposed to fund $40,000 plus inflation. So $43,000. They then withdraw from that $660,000. Now they got $610,000. And is that safe then? Can they fund that safely? Now take another retiree who didn't retire, who waited a year, they had a million bucks, they now have $700,000, and they go to a financial advisor, and they say, well, you can spend $28,000. You've got person A, who has now six, just a little over $600,000, and their advisor told them to spend $43,000. You have person B, who now has $700,000, and their advisor is now telling them it's safe to spend $28,000. One of them is at far greater risk of potentially running out. So person A is in a bad position because now they've gone, I mean, if you run a Monte Carlo, mm-hmm. they've gone from maybe a 90% chance of success now to maybe a, you know, a 60% chance of success or less. That means they have to cut back. So the problem with using an investment portfolio is if the markets fall, you have to adjust to what the market is giving you. And if the market gives you something bad, then you have a choice. You can either adjust or you can take greater risk of potentially running out. And you could live it up. But if you live it up and you know the Monte Carlo is telling you only got a 50 or 60% chance of success, then eventually you're going to find yourself in a position where you're going to be constrained. You're going to have to cut way back. Um, so that's part of the mystery of the 4% approach is that it doesn't accommodate the reality that markets are risky and nobody knows in advance what they're going to get. We didn't have this question on the docket, but uh, you, you brought up the term. So I figured we'll ask in this series, which is the Monte Carlo analysis, right? I feel that, uh, 
the industry got really, really tight with Monte Carlo for a while, right? Um, do you still feel like that's the best analysis out there for running retirement income projections? Or would you rather see people use a mix of testing strategies? I mean, where have you fallen on this conversation? Because I, I was actually at the FPA retreat and there was two sessions on Monte Carlo. And I'm like, I don't remember when there were that many conversations around it up until recently. You know, I love Monte Carlo. I, I am not going to denigrate the technique. I'm going to denigrate how people interpret the outputs and the sort of thresholds that they look at from their Monte Carlo. So when we run Monte Carlos and, you know, Blanchett, David Blanchett is is like the guru of money, running Monte Carlos. And what I have him do a lot is run Monte Carlos over time. So one of the things that we've done is let's start at age 65 and let's run a Monte Carlo every year with with random stock returns mm -hmm. where we try to maintain the same probability of success every year. Now, that gives us a completely distribution, different distribution of spending paths. And if we do that, you know, that sort of information about what happens between 65 and 95, Monte Carlo can give you. It's just that people are not looking at it. And it is the right way to approach it because it, it shows you that sequence of returns and how it impacts the spending path. But that doesn't get enough attention. The relationship between mm -hmm. random returns and how that, in fact, impacts your lifestyle and how flexible you have to be when you take investment risk. And for the from the client's point of view, you know, I don't know if they think well, uh, and humans in general maybe don't think well in probabilities, right? No. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and they're somewhat they're somewhat abstract. They're a little bit more outcome focused than they are sort of probability focused. And so that's a that's a skill I think the advisor. Has has to develop to be able to communicate the results of the Monte Carlo and what that actually means for, for the end client. Yeah, 60% of the time it works every time, Devin. It's totally That's right. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, And the other thing I remember, and this was actually in the RICP, we talked about the magnitude of failure is often not captured right. in Monte Carlo either. And I, the example I always give was like a life situation. Like we said, it works 90% of the time, right? And it's a surgery. And you say, well, what happens that other 10? Well, 10% of the time you die. Right. So it's a pretty successful surgery, but it depends on what it's for. Right. If that was a hair transplant and 10 percent of the time you died, you'd probably say no. Like, I'm never just going to not have hair. Right. Like, it's totally fine. Um, but in some surgeries, it would be worth it. Um, but if you said, you know, the other 10 percent. Right. You you, you kind of get a cough for two days. They both would say 10 percent failure. Right. And this risk part. But that magnitude is sometimes hard to explain. Um, you know, and I think about that from distributions, like when do you run out of money in those bad situations? Because if you run out of money five years into retirement in 10% of the situations, like that to me is actually a very risky strategy, right? Like that's a big chance of failure versus, well, we fail 10% of the time, but they're all in years 95 to 100. Okay, maybe not so bad. Yeah, I have a friend who's a financial advisor in Dallas, and he has this story that he gives clients where he says, you know, you get on a plane and the pilot comes on and tells you, you got a 5% chance of crashing by the time we get to our destination. Do you get off that plane? Um, and I think that's a good way of framing this whole idea of even a relatively small probability of failure can have a big outcome. Now, when it comes to Monte Carlo, I think, you know, a 10% chance of failure may be okay. Maybe a 20% chance of failure is okay because you have to define failure. It is that ability to, to sustain that desired lifestyle 
with inflation over, you know, up to the age of 95. Now, if you're willing to be flexible, then it's okay. And I think that's something that that Wade and, and David and I would all agree on, that, you know, probably this idea of being very rigid about the amount of spending is where people get into trouble. Um, and you have to acknowledge that you start out at retirement with maybe a 5 or a 10% chance of failure, but you have to be flexible with what the market is going to give you over time. And I think if you're overly conservative, if you focus on that 5% failure rate and you're only going to be spending 3% of your savings per year, you're also losing out. You're not spending as much as you could have been spending. Um, so I, I think at the beginning, it's okay to use a bigger failure rate. But you have to acknowledge that that means that you may have to cut back. Do you think advisors underestimate how willing clients are to be to be flexible in their spending and be adaptive depending on the market conditions and inflation and other things like that? Well, see, now this is, I think, the first step beyond how much do you want to give to your heirs and how much do you want to spend This is to say, all right, let's look at how much you want to spend and let's look at how much of it is flexible and how much of it is inflexible. Because Risky investments are not appropriate for funding flexible spending goals because you're by nature, you have to be flexible. Now, with your inflexible spending goals, you can cover that with Social Security, some sort of a bond strategy or annuity strategy with your portfolio. But, you know, you have to let the client define how much of their spending is flexible and how much is inflexible. And then you build the asset and product strategy around what the client wants. You don't impose that on them. And it's really useful as an advisor to know what's motivating that. If they have a if they have a, a, a bequest motivation at the end, they're they're gonna be more willing to adapt their spending potentially in, in some of those flexible areas than maybe somebody that doesn't have those types of motivations and goals. Let's talk a little bit about some new research and and kind of product development that you've been looking at, which is these contingent deferred annuities. Probably a lot of advisors aren't very aware of them, so this might be the first time they're even hearing the term. So can you walk us through what both what you're looking at and just what are these new types of strategies or products? Yeah. So imagine that example again. You have a million dollars at retirement. Um, you want to be able to spend $45,000 nominal per year, not inflation adjusted. And you pull $45,000 out of your portfolio the first year, your portfolio goes down by 30%, you got 700 minus 45, you know, $655,000. Then you're, you are standing there at the end of the first year of retirement, you've pulled $45,000 of spending, you now have $655,000, you have to decide how much to pull out the second year. And if you're risk averse, you're going to cut it back to 30. Uh, but what if an insurance company at the very beginning of retirement is willing to guarantee that you can withdraw $45,000 from that $1 million portfolio if you pay a fee every year? So maybe the fee is 1.5%. So that gets deducted from your, you know, you, know, you have to pay $15,000 for the cost of insurance to get that. Now, if you continue to get unlucky and your portfolio doesn't recover and you spend $45,000 a year, eventually the money is going to deplete. It's going to deplete mm -hmm. faster if you buy insurance. But once it depletes, the insurance company continues to make those income payments. So essentially, it is it's investment retirement income protection. And so at the beginning of retirement, you have an investment portfolio. It consists of stocks and bonds. Um, you're an advisor. You manage those stocks and bonds, but you give the client the opportunity to check a box and say, I want my income protected. And then they're able to 
take $45,000 guaranteed no matter how long they live from their investment portfolio. It operates like that guaranteed lifetime withdrawal Mm -hmm. benefit that you get from a variable annuity, except an advisor gets to manage the assets and disaggregate the insurance component from that type of variable annuity product. There may also be tax efficiencies to being able to manage your income from an investment portfolio, especially non-qualified equity assets. You might be able to generate more than you could from a variable annuity. Um, But it also makes it very clear you have a lot more control as an investor or as an advisor by disaggregating the insurance from the VA. It's like the baker example, right? You're, uh, You're baking your own cake, but maybe you're getting a guarantee from a baker to bring another cake if you need one. Right. I mean, and that's it's it's like the institution is providing pure insurance value. They're the ones who are estimating how long people are going to live on average. They're the ones who are trying to estimate the cost of hedging, that potential risk of the market. So it, it's really too risky. And, and one of the reasons why I have become so intrigued with this concept is because uh, David Blanchett and I were doing some research on uh, single premium immediate annuities and deferred income annuities and these types of lifetime withdrawal benefits. And we estimated how much you could safely spend if you were risk averse with different types of options. And what we found was that you could actually spend more with an option that incorporated investment risk, but also incorporated a lifetime income benefit. So you get the potential upside of, in terms of spending, of your your portfolio going up, but you also get the safe safety net that uh, you're, you're at least going to be able to withdraw a minimum amount from that portfolio. Now, a SPIA might be able to pay you you know, five and a half or six percent from that million dollars every year. But that guaranteed income benefit gives you both liquidity and it gives you a safety net uh, and the potential for an equity premium that might allow you to spend more and pass on more to your heirs. So for you, Dr. Michael Finka, how would you describe what a financially free retirement looks like for yourself? Oh, man, you know, there's a lot of us who have talked about this. So I'm actually on this group of uh, economists who talk about how they approach their own retirement income planning. And annuities are very popular. And by the way, you know, this is one of those disconnects, I think, between uh, the industry and academics. You know, in academics, there's really no argument about the efficiency of annuities. And and, in personal finance, I think there's a lot of argument about them. Um, But, you know, most of us are, we're strategic. We're thinking, like, how do you delay Social Security? All of us agree that delaying Social Security is by far, especially in a low interest rate, real interest rate environment like we have right now with people living longer, it's anybody who expects to live live longer than the average American should delay Social Security. So that's that's step one for everybody, I think. Um, You know, most of us are willing to take a certain amount of investment risk. But, uh, you know, a lot of people have QLACs are very popular. Uh, I don't know if <laughs> there was a company that offered an inflation protected SPIA mm-hmm. uh, and that went away because I think only the people in that group ended up buying that. <laughs> <laughs> sold like six. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's these are the, the, the types, you know, but I think when it comes to to you know, if you I had these, this conversation with with also with Wade Fow and, and David Blanchett. Um, our plans are pretty similar. I think that, you know, we're going to ensure a foundational income in retirement for all of us. 
uh, where there may be slightly different nuances in how we do that. I'm, you know, to me, it's a no brainer to get a QLAC. There's actually a couple of QLACs on the marketplace that have floating interest rates. Uh, they're offered by mutuals. There's a dividend component. So to me, those are more efficient because they also protect again that against that potential inflation and interest rate risk. Um, that's to me a no brainer. Um, I'm going to annuitize my base spending in retirement so that I never have to worry about. It. I just don't want to have to think about it. <laughs> I don't want to have to leave the success of my lifestyle up to the equity risk premium completely. I'm willing to take a certain amount of investment risk. I'm, I'm willing to be certain flexible about some of my spending, but I want to have the peace of mind of knowing that my base expenses will always be covered. That's it. Uh, I, it just reminded me of the word, I think it's, it was coined by Brian Portnoy, the funded contentment, I think was the term mm-hmm. that he liked to use sometimes. And so you're, you're funding what, what will content keep you content you know, uh, in, in, in the long term. Uh, and ability to take some risk uh, on the side if if necessary or if desired. Right. And our final question here today, which is legacy. I love this word, um, but not in the sense of like ultimate legacy, but what do you want the legacy of your work to be in the retirement income arena? Like if you could just have one thing, you said, you know what, if I could go wave the, you know, the magic wand, uh, you know, in retirement income, right? What would you, what would you like that legacy to be? You know, I, I think we've, come so far in creating a private sector retirement system with a defined contribution world. Um, but we haven't figured out how the average employee who doesn't understand anything about personal finance and doesn't want to understand anything about personal finance, we need to create a DC system that allows them to transition into retirement without having to face, I mean, it really is cruel to force people who have a bunch of savings to figure out what to do with it at at retirement without giving them any sort of guidelines right now. I want within the next 10 years to see defaults move to the point where decumulation becomes just as important as accumulation and people are defaulted into a solution in retirement that allows them to be more content, to spend more of the money that they've saved. That's a beautiful answer. And I I also think it goes back to, and uh, Dr. Julie Raggett's used this term once, and then I kind of started borrowing it from her, but the nobility of advice. And I was like, you know, you you don't stop and use that term a lot. But when you think about how many people, as you said, don't know what they're doing, the system doesn't exist there. The nobility of what advisors do in helping people prepare for retirement and creating retirement income plans is so needed today. And I think we heard that uh, throughout the whole conversation. But um, Devin and and Dr. Michael Fanka, thank you for joining us here on uh, this episode of The Framework podcast. Please listen to this quick disclosure. Investment products contain risk and may lose value. There is no guarantee that an investment product will be successful in achieving its objectives. Investors should consult their investment professional prior to making an investment decision. This podcast is brought to you by Carson Group and PIMCO, who are unaffiliated entities. This material contains the opinions of the speakers and is not necessarily the views of Carson Group or PIMCO, and such opinions are subject to change without notice. This podcast may include discussions of investment strategies. These discussions are for illustrative purposes only and may not be appropriate for all investors. The discussions are not based on any particularized financial situation or need and are not intended to be and should not be construed as a forecast, research, investment advice, 
or a recommendation for any specific PIMCO or other strategy, product, or service. Individuals should consult their own financial advisors to determine the most appropriate allocations for their financial situation, including their investment objectives, time frame, risk tolerance, savings, and other investments. PIMCO does not provide legal or tax advice. Further, this seminar is not intended to provide specific legal, tax, or other professional advice in this podcast. For a comprehensive review of your personal situation, always consult with a tax or legal advisor. The discussion herein is general in nature and is provided for informational purposes only. There is no guarantee as to its accuracy or completeness. Any tax statements contained herein are not intended or written to be used and cannot be relied upon or used for purpose of avoiding penalties imposed by the Internal Revenue Service or state and local tax authorities. Individuals should consult their own legal and tax counsel as to matters discussed herein and before entering into any estate planning, trust, investment, retirement, or insurance arrangement.